0: Hi fellas, this is me again, Peter M.
1: Hello, Peter.
0: I'm back with a fresh batch of regular knowledge that has just been caught in the wild world of social sciences. Thank you for listening and welcome back.
1: Nice to see you, Doctor.
0: In this week's episode, we'll talk about art and gender. They're both very interesting topics, so the combination of the two should be intellectually satisfying, at the least, more precisely... We'll consider some aspects of gender inequality in the production of art in what is sometimes referred to as Western societies, that is societies from Western Europe and the United States of America. The link between art production and gender perceptions varies between the different social and cultural groups on Earth, especially since the notions of art and gender themselves are very different from one place to another. So I'll mention a few examples from a few societies from Western Europe and America And of course, this represents but a teeny tiny fraction of artistic reality throughout human history. I mean, it would probably take something like a gazillion 15 minutes long podcast episodes to even start covering the topic. Our goal here is to show how social sciences help cast a critical eye on an important subject such as gender inequality or human art. Now, if something is wrong, let's discuss it calmly and intelligently. Unfortunately and unsurprisingly, as early as the 18th century, Art production in Europe was largely controlled by men who did their absolute best to prevent women from having artistic ambitions. The reasons and excuses for this hostile attitude towards women artists came from the common sexist norms that dominate in western societies for centuries. Men and women were definitely not conceived as being equal.
1: Oh nonsense! Why don't you be like me? I'm sensible. And I'm brave.
0: Women were supposed to be naturally designed for household chores and service to an official male protector, be it a relative or a husband who had authority over them. Now the male protector was mostly protecting a woman from other men, so from other potential protectors, but a woman often did not have any protector to protect her from her so-called protector. Um, where was that? Well of course it was not protection as much as control. This is why social sciences don't talk about male protection, they talk about male domination which is a sort of violence, which is quite the opposite of protection actually. Women artists from the 18th to the 20th century were not seeking protection anyway. What they wanted was the liberty to express their creativity. They wanted to be free to practice their art. Because as we know now, human creativity does not depend on the gender and can manifest in anyone.
1: And We've all got to make our minds perfectly blank. Well, that should be easy for you. It is. It.
0: According to the sexist norms of the time, Women allegedly lacked the ability to understand something as intellectual as art. And if a woman ever happened to paint, she was limited to topics related to domestic life or considered nice or frivolous such as flowers for instance. In the 18th century France, Italy or England, a painteress was not allowed to draw from live nude models and more generally she could not represent any meaningful social or historical scene.
1: Wait just a minute.
0: But this was not enough to discourage women from taking up the paintbrush. What was really preventing women artists to develop their talents was their banning from most of art workshops and academies. Without a proper formation, many of these artists could not progress. Some who succeeded in making a living from their art often tried to help the others. Adelaide Lébiguyer was a successful French portrait painter and a gifted miniaturist. Portraits and miniatures were genres that she was authorized to practice. Le B. Guilla was actively advocating for women artists. When she was made a member of the prestigious Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, she proposed at a meeting that women be authorized to be part of the Academy's leading board. The male members found the idea preposterous.
1: Why you ungrateful worm!
0: Nevertheless, Adelaide Le Bille found a way to help her fellow women artists. She founded an art studio forming exclusively young female artists, helping them to perfect their techniques while exploring their artistic possibilities. In reality, there were a lot of women artists in Europe at that time. Find that surprising? Well, it's the irony of it all. While it is true that a lot of women were discouraged and effectively excluded from art production because of male domination, for a long time, The same sexist norms prevented the ones who did it in the art world from being recognized. It was not before the second half of the 20th century that the general public started to acknowledge the fact that there had been talented women who did not surrender to the constant nagging of their male counterparts. Women who created and crafted important works and masterpieces. And how? In 1971, the questions of women's invisibility in art was discussed with renewed fervor in the United States. In January 1971, the journal Art News published a paper by art historian Linda Nochlin called Why have there been no great female artists? The title of course is provocative. The article shows that stating that there have never been great women artists isn't true and based on a wrong orientation of history of art in general. Nochlin shows how sexism had amputated human art of half of its production either by opposing women artists or by trying to have their work fall into oblivion. You're a very brilliant person. Has it
1: never occurred to you that I'm also a woman?
0: So-called genius, Nocklin showed, is a social construct and up to the date she was writing it had been attributed almost exclusively to men. Nocklin's paper was an important element of a new trend in the reflection on the struggles of female artists in the Western world. Starting in the 1970s, the public started to discover and rediscover women artists who had played a major role in the evolution of arts in Europe and America. It was the case for Berthe Morisot, for instance, one of the founders of the French school of Impressionism. My aujourd'hui? She brought her own uh, aujourd'hui. Before the end of the 20th century, Paintings from Morisot were mere accessories tagging along the works of male representatives of the movement who were and still are extremely famous, like Claude Monet, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, or Edgar Degas, for instance. Nowadays, an exposition of her works is rightfully considered as a major cultural event. Morisot, as an impressionist, had a very personal and innovative vision of painting, as well as an evolutive style that led her to a stunning mastery. Berthe Morisot was respected by many a painter of her time, but she still had to fight her way through male domination. She wrote in her diary, I don't think there ever was a man who treated a woman as equal. And that is all I would have asked for, because I know I'm worth as much as them. Every woman artist has her own way of thinking what being a female artist is like. Her vision of the role she plays or should play in the art world and her idea of what recognition she should get for her work. Women art pioneers thus had a variety of opinions on the matter. The famous Georgia O'Keeffe, who was very successful in the 1920s, always refused to be considered a feminist artist. She also thought that her gender was irrelevant in understanding her paintings. Other artists, however, were openly militating for a rethinking of social norms.
1: It must be wonderful to be allowed to do everything you want to, whenever you want to.
0: Not only did they express their freedom in their work, they also made their point with a liberated lifestyle, the Vida Tiste, the artist's life, which was considered scandalous by the bourgeois establishment. My pot! She, uh, she cooked once in a while.
1: My bourbon?
0: She, uh, drank a little.
1: My cigarette box? She
0: smoked too.
1: My lipstick?
0: In the 1920s, Polish painteress Tamara de Lempicka was openly bisexual as she was romantically involved with her model, Susie Polder. Tamara de Lempicka was good at sports and very fond of cars, both threats that were traditionally associated with manhood. She painted women with short hair and muscled bodies, and she challenged the norms of male superiority in her roaring worldly life. But she was frustrated by a lack of recognition, and indeed. Her art became extremely popular long after her death. So we can see that as early as the 19th and 20th century, women artists were challenging social norms about gender as well as those about sexuality. French painteress and sculptor Rosa Bonheur dressed like a man and had been living with a woman partner for 40 years of her life, right in the middle of the very conservative 19th century. But as Linda Nochlin noted in 1971, there was a general lack of recognition for women artists and history of art as a discipline was centered on male figures. At the end of the 20th century, we started to discover gifted women who had been totally ignored or overshadowed by men. Sculptor Camille Claudel, for instance, long considered as nothing more than Auguste Rodin's sidekick or photographer Dora Maar primarily known as Picasso's lover, while her work was largely ignored. Very few, even now, know about Alice Guy, although she's one of the founders of the cinematographic art. In 1896, a year after the Lumiere brothers had shown the first fictional film ever made, The Water Watered, Alice Guy produced a 51 seconds movie called La Fée au Chou, the fairy of the cabbages. While The Watered Waterer was a comic scene, Alice Guy's short film had a scenario and characters and was showing a fictional reality. She shot the first peplum, called The Life of Christ, wrote and directed more than a 100 movies. One of them, from 1906, mocks the normative roles of men and women in the early 20th century France by swapping them. It's called The Results of Feminism. Afterwards, Elise moved to America, where she founded an independent movie studio. But after her divorce, she lost everything, including the intellectual rights for her movies, and she was slowly forgotten.
1: Can you imagine that?
0: Now, we're talking about legitimate culture here, forms of art that are official and mostly accessible to members of an economic and intellectual elite. But the struggle for equality has also shaped popular culture in the contemporary world. It's often believed that social progress goes a lot faster in higher social classes, but this has never been really proven. Sexism being a systematic problem, it manifests everywhere. Similarly, resistance exists in every layer of the society, taking a multiplicity of forms. At the end of the 1960s, a renewed and powerful environment of anti-establishment subcultures opened up new artistic possibilities to women. Movements such as the civil rights movement or the The hippie movement gathered men and women alike of different ethnic and social origins. Music became a very important mass media of social and political activism especially for poor people and middle-class people. Let's be honest sexism remained strong and even in these movements women had to face constant discriminations. Nevertheless it gave women artists new channels to express their creativity and share their opinions. Women singers could then become superstars drawing the admiration of millions of fans it was the result of a long battle against patriarchy, a fight the women artists of the 1970s joined with all their talents, voicing their liberty from the soft and hypnotic melodies of John Baez to the vibrant and full voice of Janice Joplin.
1: Busted flat in Baton Rouge, waiting for a train. I was feeling nearly as faded as my jeans. I'm Bobby Thumb, the diesel down just before a rain wrote a soul the way to New Orleans. I pulled my heart out of my dirty red band. I, I was playing soft while the bobby sang the blue, yeah. Windshield and wiper slapping time. I was holding bobby's hand in mine. We sang every song that driver knew. Freedom is just another word of fall. Nothing left to lose and nothing Ain't nothing, honey feet ain't free And feeling good was easy, Lord, when he sang the blues You know, feeling good was good enough for me mm-hmm. Good enough for
0: me and my Bobby McGee In the 1980s, the interest for women invisibility visibility in art led to a new reflection on the fact that due to the over dominance of men in society Women were also ill-represented as subjects of art pieces, like in painting, for instance, where they are often portrayed either as suffering Madonna's or as lascivious sexual objects. In the meantime, homosexuality began more visible. Sadly, AIDS was shedding a cruel new light on the matter. Once again, art became a medium for discussing the variety of gender and sexual orientations and the violence the normative heterosexual order was exercising on minorities. Artists like Keith Haring were sending messages through their work, trying to develop AIDS awareness, for instance. In the 2000s, the inclusion of women artists from ethnic minorities in Western countries was the key topic. It led to a more general vision of a worldwide cooperation in order to establish connections between women artists everywhere on the planet. It is no mystery that most countries on earth suffer from male domination. And nowadays a global network dedicated to helping women to give life to their inspiration seems to be the best thing to do.
1: What makes you think you can stop it?
0: What is it like to be a woman in an egalitarian art world?
1: I'll let you know when I find out.
0: Indeed there is still much to do to make sure that half of the humanity is not prevented from expressing itself through art. Maybe the most important way to manifest one's freedom. Nowadays, social sciences try to understand the systematic obstacles to the expression of creativity for women in a connected perspective. It's about linking the question to other matters such as racism or post-colonialism and all kinds of domination and violence. Until we solve these questions, undoubtedly we'll only have access to art in a reduced variety. And that's a shame is what is. And that's all for today, fellas. I gotta say goodbye now. The first song you heard in this episode was written and interpreted by yours truly. The second one was my own interpretation of me and Bobby McGee, a song written by Chris Christopherson that was the last track Janis Joplin recorded before she OD'd. The witty comments that punctuated this episode were taken from the following copyright-free movies. Charade, released in 1963, The Time of Their Lives, released in 1946, 1952 movies Dreamboat and Jack and the Beanstalks. My Dear Secretary, released in 1948. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, fellas. Thank you for listening, and stay on the lookout for wild knowledge.